This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Oh, Major's always near the doghouse. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. Don't want to waste any time. I want to introduce our special guest. Michael Oren is his name. He is a historian, he is an academic, an ambassador, politician, written extensively about the Middle East. He was for four years during the first part of the Obama presidency, Israel's ambassador to the United States. Michael, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Garrett. Garrett, Major. Major. I get confused. I'm a major in the Army, and I don't don't know whether it's a name or a rank, or it's like major, 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 major. You probably get that a lot, the major, major. Yes, I do. I do. I get lots of Joseph Heller references to Catch-22. I've always been looking for my Yosarian. Trust me, Michael, I have been. What what were your parents thinking? That's what I want to know. Well, uh, they were thinking what uh, my grandfather thought, because it was my grandfather's name and my father's name and now my name. All different middle names, so I'm not... Uh, held back by seconds or juniors or esquires or anything like that. I'm just one of the other majors kicking around the big planet Earth. My son, by the way, is named Luke. We uh, thought three generations was enough. So, Michael, I want our audience to get to know you first before we plow into all the issues related to what is happening right now between Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. So, tell my audience where you were born and what your journey was to Israel. So, I was born in New York, um, and 1955, right? Yeah, you got it. I just had a birthday last week. Let's let's not go there. Um, and uh, I grew up actually in New Jersey. My my parents, yeah, my parents, my father passed away a few months ago, but, but my mother's still there, living in the same house I grew up in, in a working class neighborhood where we. I was the only Jewish kid, and uh, tough Irish and Sicilian neighborhood. And as a Jewish kid, I got the crap beat out of me all the time. And, you know, now today, everyone's very aware of anti-Semitism in America, uh, but it was always there. There was always that, you know, sort of uh, subtext. And uh, if you grew up in a tough Sicilian Irish neighborhood, you experienced it. And I would come home all beaten up. And my father uh, had landed on Normandy Beach. He and his brother, both well, all the way across Europe, had liberated a concentration camp. And they took pictures of the concentration camp. And they kept, my father kept it in an album down the basement, hidden. And uh, every time I come home bloody, my father would take me down the basement, open this album, show me the pictures, the piles of bodies, the skeletons, and say, you see that? You see that, son? That's why we need a strong state of Israel. Like that. By the way, I carried those pictures in my, in my cell phone with me everywhere. 
and uh, to remind me. And, um, you know, I grew up in the in the 60s where, you know, Israel was the champion. There was a six day war. Um, mm -hmm. we, people remember the victory of the Six Day War. People don't remember that, that for the three weeks before the Six Day War, Israel was surrounded by Arab armies that were going to toss it into the sea and nobody was going to do anything. Um, uh, American Jews thought they were going to witness a second Holocaust in one generation. And okay, the, the, it turned out a little differently, but the, the trauma remained. Um, and starting when I was 15, I joined a, a youth movement, Jewish youth movement. We went to Washington, D.C., as one does in Jewish youth movements. And I met uh, Israel's ambassador <laughs> to the United States, divided states. I shook his hand and I said to Yitzhak Rabin, right? Yeah, I said, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be Israel's ambassador to the United States. I ended up uh, later on being uh, Rabin's advisor uh, during the, the Oslo period. So uh, that's another story. But I started, I was a little cuckoo. I used to work um, in construction. I worked... Um, shoveling snow, everything you could possibly do in the Northeast to uh, save up enough money to go to Israel every summer and work for free on a kibbutz. And um, I can't say I was the best farmer in the world, Major. Uh, I think they're kind of happy to see me go, like wrecked tractors. Those pictures of the Six-Day War of all the wrecked Egyptian vehicles, that's the way I left a lot of kibbutzim. And, um, but I was a cowboy. I was a cowboy on, on the Golan Heights, learned to ride and, you know, sort of round up cattle. And, and I loved it. I loved it. Um, I had to decide whether to go in the army first or go to college first. I decided to go to college first. Uh, I studied uh, Middle Eastern history, uh, got a, a BA and an MA from Columbia. Uh, and later um, I would do get a, an MA and a PhD from, from Princeton with Bernard Lewis, my teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and, but in between, I, I went what they call Aliyah. I moved to Israel, moved with a backpack. Everything I had in the world was in this backpack. And I became what's known as a lone soldier. The Israeli army has a status known as lone soldiers. Um, back then, there were a couple of dozen. Today, there were about eight or 9,000 of them, about a brigade strength. Um, these are people who come to Israel to serve in the army. Most They try to stay here. It's not easy. Um, the Israeli army is so different than the American military. I mean, I, uh, I grew up around the American military and uh, very, very different. But it, the families are very much involved. Um, they they come to the base. You go home every couple of weeks. Um, and but if you don't have a family there, it's rough. So that's the lone soldier status. Mm -hmm. I went into the paratroopers. Um, I fought in the first Lebanon war. We didn't know it was the first back then. Right. And right. Uh, I was in the, 1982. Right. 1982, I went into Beirut. Uh, Jeep went around the corner. There was this big city beneath me. And I said, well, what the hell is that? And turns out that was Beirut. Um, that was brutal. That was, you know, street by street, house by house. And um, I then spent, I think, about all told about a year of my life uh, fighting Lebanon. Um, and then stayed in the army through the reserves as an officer. I'm a major, as you said, as I said before, and uh, and ended up being also in the second Lebanon War, as well as uh, uh, you know several operations uh, in between, um, long sort of military uh, involvement. But I always had this dream, even when I was in academia and writing Middle East history, I had this dream of being Israel's ambassador, uh, and that came back in, that came in 2009. So um, and it was an interesting uh, appointment because. Um, I was not a member of Netanyahu's party. I was never a Likud member. And I wasn't even especially close to Netanyahu. He respected me as an historian. And he figured that with Barack Obama coming into office, this was a president unlike any other president that Israel had ever known. Um, there was concern. And that we needed somebody who would understand that part of America, sort of liberal America, and speak that language. Um, so that was the appointment. Um, did he think it would be important that you also would be able to speak the language of a professor or someone like a professor or an academic, someone rooted in that kind of, if not oratory, rhetoric? 
It was less important to him. What was important to him? He says, I'm going to give you three, three words of advice, media, media, media. And uh, I'll never forget him saying that. And uh, I, starting uh, in the early part of the century, um, um, I began to be an analyst for, I was an analyst for CBS, uh, later on mm -hmm. an analyst for, for CNN. Um, loved working for CBS, by the way. Um, right. no, no one has overseas offices anymore, uh, but uh, right, they've, they've cut back a lot of the overseas coverage. But I really enjoyed working with CBS, and um, and and I also became a, a pretty a fairly regular columnist, uh, both in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. So that I think he was more impressed with that because as an ambassador, I did the hard stuff. I did Colbert twice. I did <laughs> right. that is terrifying. I want to tell you, doing Colbert mm -hmm. is terrifying. I did, you know, the, the, the Daily Show and I did The View and, and the, that requires you be, to go on, you know, CNN or CBS is OK. It requires a certain amount of skills to go on Colbert. Oh, my. You got you. You better be really good. You better have 40 years of experience in media under your belt if you want to survive that. Um, and I survived. them. I survived. It wasn't easy. And it was during a very, a very difficult. I think it was probably the most difficult period in the history of U.S. Israel relations. Um, pretty much a one, at least one, if not many, crises going on every day. And what made it so difficult those four years? Was it the orientation of the Obama administration? Was it facts on the ground? What made it so difficult? It's like it's like as they used to say, "D all of the above." There was a, it was mm -hmm. a perfect storm. You have you, yeah, we had a, a very ideological administration. Uh, they always asked, "What's the difference between the Biden administration and the and the Obama administration?" Because they seem to be the same people, uh, or many of the same people. And the answer, very simply, is ideology. It was yeah, Obama's administration was a deeply ideological um, administration, which had a very um, specific view of the Middle East, of the Muslim world, reaching out to the Muslim world, uh, of the Palestinian issue, of the Iranian issue. Um, almost all the loggerheads with Israel's position, and um, so it was it, a clash of worldviews. That started with that. Secondly, um, there was the, the personal aspect. It, it was Netanyahu versus Obama. And I don't think you could have found two people who were, say, personally or philosophically more ill-matched than those two. And by the way, they both thought they were the smartest people in the room. So there's only going to be one smartest person in the room. It's, it, it's not a good deal. Um, and right. um, <laughs> And then the third was the Middle East. And now we've seen what's happened with the Biden administration, that the last thing the Biden administration wanted to get involved in was the Middle East. And now guess what? Yesterday, Tony Blinken is here. So, uh, right. you know, surprise, surprise, coming to a, coming to a neighborhood near you. I used I once I once got Henry Kissinger angry uh, at, a, at a, a talk where I said, you know, the Middle East is not Vietnam. In 1975, you could pick up and go home. You could throw a couple of copies yes. off the side of an aircraft carrier and go home. And you could be pretty confident that the Viet Cong weren't going to follow you to Washington, D.C. Pretty confident. Correct. That is so not true about the Middle East. And mm -hmm. uh, you, you think you're going home, but you're not going home. And the Middle East is going to come to you in various ways. Now, the Biden administration has just found that out kind of the hard way. Um, and um, in the Middle East, during that period, it was the Arab Spring in 2011. It was a constant conflict around Gaza. It was the Syrian civil war, the Le Libya civil war, uh, upheaval in Iraq. I mean, you name it. It just it didn't stop. Every day, it was something new. There were, there were issues to deal with. And we're going to dig much more deeply into the issues of our current hour with Michael Oren, former U.S., former Israeli ambassador to the United States, and our special guest on Major Garrett's segment, Tooth the Takeout, in just one second. 
This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Michael Oren is our special guest. He's written two very memorable and lauded books, one called Power, Faith, and Fantasy. That's a New York Times bestseller. The other, Six Days of War, June 1967, and the Making of the Modern Middle East. As I mentioned in the opening, he is a scholar, a historian. He writes a lot about the region. Uh, some of his writings are, as I said, highly praised. Some are criticized. Yep. That comes with the territory, as Michael knows better than I do. Uh, but what it mat- what matters is he is a voice that counts and always has been, and so we're indebted to him. And I want to make sure that everyone in the audience knows this is a perspective on the situation in the Middle East, not the perspective. There is no singular perspective. Everyone has a take. Everyone has a story. That's true block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood throughout the Palestinian territories and Israel. I'm right about that, aren't I, Michael? You are absolutely right about that. No two Israelis agree either. So you know, it's not just Israelis and Palestinians. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I'd like your and, – and I don't want to wade in too deeply into the day-to-day because this program is going to exist all deep into next week on radio stations, podcast platforms. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to tie ourselves to the turn of the screw day by day, but just the general impression of what's happening, what has happened, and is it singularly different? Because there's some commentary I read that says some component parts of what's going on in the clashes between Israel and Palestinians, particularly in Gaza and Hamas, feels different and looks different, and it's being carried out in a different way. Broad thoughts. And the, the broad thought is yes and no. Okay. What's, 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 what's the no? Um, I was just listening to a lecture I gave in, in 2009 at Georgetown. I was a visiting professor, and I gave a talk. I had just participated in the CAS-led operation. It was a, it was a three-week operation in December, early January, 2008-2009. Uh, I came back to Georgetown. I took off my uniform and I gave a lecture about Gaza, an hour long lecture and, you know, talked about the history, talked about the operation and, and listening to this, uh, watching it, it's on YouTube, um, was very dismaying, not just because I've aged uh, in 12 years. It was dismaying because I could be talking about every single operation since then. It began the same way. Rocket fire from Gaza is a response from the air, uh, civilian casualties, uh, media you know, cutting us another colon, um, immediate riots in the streets of, of London and Paris, uh, pressure on foreign governments, uh, Israel has to accept a ceasefire, um, war crimes accusation. I mean, really, like almost mm-hmm. total, total deja vu, total deja vu. So that's the, that's the, the, the no, it, it, nothing's different. Everything's exactly right. the same. The yes, and here's the bad news. Uh, the bad news is that Hamas has longer rockets than it had longer range. It now hits Tel Aviv, hits Jerusalem uh, with alacrity. Um, 
it, it, it has increased its rate of fire. Uh, Amas shot more rockets at us this time in 10 days than they shot in 50 days in 2014. Amazing. Mm-hmm. That's with all of our, our all of our increase of our bombing. The international reaction was swifter and harsher against Israel. The, the pressure on Israel was more intense. And consequently, the, the, the battle ended very quickly. It's one of the, I mean, think of it, in 2008 was three weeks. In 2014 was 15 days. This was 11 days. And um, I think that, that, you know, yes, the Israel Defense Forces inflicted punishing damage on Hamas. For a year, a major, a little bit longer, I was in, I, I didn't mention I was elected to government and I served as the yes. city to the prime minister. Uh, I was put in charge of Gaza. This is something you don't want to wake up to in the morning. <laughs> I didn't have enough white hair before that from the Obama years. Now I had Gaza. And right. I, they always say in government, if you want to rise, do the hard things. Well, Gaza would be right near the top of the list of hard things. I think, I think it's beyond it. It's in the impossible things. And I learned about Gaza. And what I learned about Gaza is that everything you know, you think you know about human behavior, you got to throw out the window. Do you know that Hamas uses hundreds and hundreds of kids to dig those tunnels? And hundreds have died digging those tunnels. They're in the, they're in the, they're in the child slavery business. Do you know that Hamas keeps a humanitarian disaster level in Gaza. It actually turns away Israeli food trucks. It blows up the terminals that we use to, to deliver the, the humanitarian aid. I mean, it, it's insane things. They'll drive you crazy. And um, and you add the Iranians in the mix. You add the Palestinian Authority in the mix. Iranians, the Iranians are willing to fight Israel to the last Palestinian. And the PA is willing to fight Hamas to the last Israeli. Okay? I mean, I'm not kidding you. Right. It's, it's, it's insane stuff. So it's very, it's, it's, at the end of the day here, in answer to your question, I'm sorry for being long-winded, Hamas, mm. every time we beat the living daylights out of Hamas, they get stronger. Mm-hmm. It's just the opposite you think. Uh, can I tell you a quick story? Do I have time? Sure, please. Okay, so please. part of my introduction to Gaza, uh, I spent a day at the southern branch of our internal security with a gentleman who today is our national security advisor, Nirvan Shabbat. He's the, he's the opposite of Jake Sullivan. And uh, he, he showed me a slide of Ismail Haniyeh, the head of Hamas, standing atop a pile of rubble and making a, a victory sign. And he said to me, is that a victory photograph or a defeat photograph? I said, it's a defeat photograph. He's on top of a ruined building. He says, no, for Hamas, that's a victory photograph because Israel has destroyed the building, but he's still standing. And every war, they get stronger. It's, it's extraordinary. Welcome to the Middle East. Right. So uh, I want to help you, ha- help, have you help my audience because there are phrases and places and things thrown around in this story. And if you're not someone versed in it, you can get easily confused. Mm-hmm. So very simply, what is Hamas and why is it there? Ah, Hamas is one of the many um, Islamic purist groups in the Middle East. It, it's, a bran- it's basically a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. It is closely related to Al Qaeda. It's closely related to the Taliban. Uh, what do all these groups have in common? They they reject the modern world. They actually reject borders, um, and they seek the uh, recreation of the caliphate. It, it's ISIS. They're all basically and same. The destruction of Israel. Yeah, but the destruction of Israel is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. The establishment of an Islamic Palestinian state is a step toward recreating the Middle Eastern Islamic state, but ultimately the goal, the global. Islamic State, uh, right? And okay. uh, that is that. What? Is, so we're just we're just in the way. 
The Iranians think very similar about us. We're, we're in the and the Iranians back Hamas. Yes, it's strange because Iran, it's one of the few Sunni groups that are backed by Shiite Iran. Uh, what they have in common is that they're, they're against us. Uh, the Islamic Jihad, which is another uh, group in uh, Gaza that, that routinely rockets us, is wholly owned and operated by Iran. And about 90% of the rockets fired at us are made in Iran, and the remainder are engineered by Iran. Uh, they're created by Iranian-trained Palestinian engineers. What is the Palestinian Authority? The Palestinian Authority was created in 1993 as part of the Oslo Accords, uh, between, mm-hmm. signed between Israel and the PLO, then under Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin. I, I was there. I was a, an advisor. So I've accompanied this. I've been around a long time. And, um, and it, it, is, it is intended as sort of a sort of a proto, sort of a, a embryonic government for sovereign state, though it's not expressly stated in the Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords is, not, is actually not a two-state formula. It was supposed to lay the groundwork for one. But it, it did. Right. And so the, it, the I always say that the, the question of whether we should have a two state solution or one state solution is kind of immaterial because we actually have a two state situation. It's a two state reality. You just have to go up uh, Israel's eastern highway and you'll see huge Palestinian flags flying over the West Bank. So they have a government. In theory, they could have elections. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas is entering the 16th year of his four year term. He doesn't want to have elections. He's afraid Hamas got to win. They collect taxes. They have a they have a. Um, they have a pseudo military. They have a paramilitary police force. What you know, what we haven't resolved in the peace process is the extent of Palestinian sovereignty, both in terms of its um, its authority uh, and as well as its uh, its territorial extent. We haven't been able to work that one out. And one of the things that's been observed that is different right now is that it is, to the eyes of some observers, clear that Hamas's political support is larger than the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority canceled scheduled elections. They don't seek a popular mandate. They are re- regarded as either uh, inefficient at best or corrupt and useless at worst. And this has created more support at the grassroots or street level for Hamas. True? Absolutely true. And Hamas is, is relatively incorruptible. Um, you know, by Middle Eastern standards, the, the Palestinian Authority, you know, the Palestinian Authority has received countless, countless hundreds of millions of dollars in international aid. It's pretty much all disappeared. Um, and, you know, now yeah, it's just going to give more aid, which is great, but I, I don't know where it's going to go. And, um, it, you know, I think that the Palestinian Authority has earned its poor reputation among Palestinians uh, probably well. And we're going to get on to the question of what's next, what may be next, and other key definitional component parts of this story with Michael Oren Foran, former Israeli ambassador to the United States, and our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of The Takeout in just one moment. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Mike Lauren has been a visiting professor at Harvard, Yale, Georgetown, uh, Tel Aviv, and Hebrew universities. He is our special guest. Uh, Michael, in a general sense, uh, do you believe that uh, the Palestinian people themselves, um, whatever their aspirations, political, geopolitical, strategic, or day-to-day might be, are often victimized either by the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, or both? They are. I, I don't think it's a picnic being a Palestinian. Depends where you are. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, at the back of this window, I'm actually in my bomb shelter here. Um, You're both, in Jaffa, correct? In Jaffa, yeah. We, both, both, many of our apartments have bomb shelters. Um, I can see Hebron. I can see the outskirts of Hebron. Hebron is, a fa- is, a, is a, just a flourishing city of almost 200,000 people. So it depends where you are. If you're you know, mm-hmm. in certain neighborhoods of East Jerusalem, if you're in the refugee camps, it's not going to be 
as good as it is in Hebron. It's difficult to generalize. If you're in Gaza, you're you're in trouble because it's, it's just a mass Gaza. It's no drinking water and electricity. Uh, yes, they're oppressed by by Hamas. Though Hamas is very very popular, I got to tell you, Hamas is mm-hmm. popular because they uh, they appeal. They give a sense of pride, and they're very good on social services too, uh, which the Palestinian Authority is not. Um, and you know, I think that. Um, but but, but it does create this conundrum because you can't negotiate with Hamas. The U.S. government regards it uh, as a terrorist organization, so identified it as such, is in this prickly situation again, because other administrations have been, when you send U.S. aid to the Palestinian Authority and you want to keep it out of Gaza or you want to get it to Gaza, but you don't want it to be in Hamas's hands, that, I'm told, is nearly impossible. It, 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 I'll tell you why it's impossible. You know, Israel has the most fastidious inspection system along that Gaza Strip. I can't tell you that we all of Israeli innovation in, inspects what goes in. Hamas has jeeps. Hamas has thousands of weapons. Hamas has 15,000 rockets. How did they get into Gaza? Uh, right. So you, There's you, a blockade. You, There's anybody, a blockade. It, the blockade. Well, it's a blockade mostly of, of, of military stuff. It's not. A, it's not. Mm-hmm. They, they send it in in bags of paint, in bags of flour. It's microscopic pieces. People on the other side put it together. Put together a jeep. You think you're going to move 70,000 or seven, $75 million into Gaza and, and Hamas is not going to get a piece of it. You're, 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 this is what I learned. Hamas, of course, going to get a piece of it. Hamas gets a piece of everything. Um, you have to be aware of that. And Michael, in your experience, uh, what does that tenacity <clears throat> and the tenacity that comes from willingness to build a Jeep part by part smuggled in in a bag of paint or a canister or something, what does that tell you? about what Israel and anyone who is sympathetic to Israel's long-term survival is up against. It's, it's, listen, I don't think the Taliban are any different. I don't think ISIS was any different. They, ISIS would all put together, you know, a jeep piece by piece. And, you know, eventually America going home from Afghanistan. And the big difference is we can't go home. We are home. And mm. there's no place we're going. And so we have to stay and fight this out. And we're up against an enemy that the more you hit them, the more they declare victory. So strange. And the, they, they actually want you to hit them because the more you hit them, you're going to be the more you're going to be labeled a war criminal in the world. This, this, this is our conundrum. Talk about dilemmas. But we have no choice. And we're just going to we are we have become an immensely resilient country. I sometimes I wonder if we're pathologically resilient. You know, we were hit by over 4000 rockets in, in over the course of 11 days. An hour after the ceasefire, everyone was out on the beach. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what would happen in the United States of America to be hit by 4,000 rockets in a week. People would be, oh, I'm not going outside so fast. And uh, it, it would just, we have become very, very resilient. And anyone who spent any time looking at the story or covering it, and I covered it only from the perspectives of the five U.S. administrations that I covered. <laughs> I've never spent a great deal of time there. Mm-hmm. Every time I've been there, I've been there on Air Force One with a range of presidents. Uh, but you are fascinated by all the intricacies all of the history, all the passion, the fantasy, the power, the faith, everything that you talk about in your book. And one of the things that is, I don't know if you would call it ironic, but certainly interesting is you mentioned the 4,000 plus rockets, many of which were intercepted by Iron Dome, a air defense system that despite the hostility and the deep disagreements and personal differences between President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu, if I read their history correctly, a good amount of that funding for Iron Dome that made it so effective came during those Obama years. I, I, that's my, that was my achievement as, as ambassador, was to bring the fu- funding for Iron Dome. You know, from this window, you can't see it next to me, uh, I watched the salvo after salvo, uh, literally over, the, this, this, my neighborhood was, was in their range, and uh, watched a rocket after rocket being intercepted literally over my house here. 
And so I had a, you know, a sense of what we say fulfillment that I brought this, that I brought this system, but this is what I want to tell you, major. It's a, it's a two-edged sword. Iron Dome. Why? Because it creates what we call the D word. It creates disproportionality. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so on our side, you know, you had John Oliver saying, Hey, there's only 10 Israelis being killed, but a hundred is Palestinians are being killed. Well, I'm sorry, John, that we don't have more people being killed, but it, 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 in a way, if one of Hamas's aims is to delegitimize us and get us labeled war crimes, Iron Dome is, is a great tool. Right, because when you look at the aggregate statistics, and I'm curious if you believe them to be true, roughly 240 Palestinians dead, uh, some 60 or 70 of them identified as children. Do you believe those statistics are valid? No. First of all, they come from the, the Hamas medical board, which is, is always suspect. But we actually know uh, the names. Uh, of the people who were killed. And um, about 80% of those people were terrorists. And it's, it's always very unfair when they lump all them together. It's like saying, it's like playing the police, you know, interrupted a bank robbery and they shot four bank robbers and they accidentally shot three hostages who were being held. So police killed seven people. That's That would be the equivalent from Israel's perspective. Uh, that statistic also does not include the, at least 20 Palestinians who were killed by Hamas rockets falling short. And the rockets kind of, you know, Perennially fall short. Uh, so we get blamed for that, too. Uh, that kids get killed. Yes, they get killed. I've, I've been in Gaza. I've been in combat in Gaza. It is it is a hellhole. But one of the reasons that 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 there are civilian casualties is because Hamas is built into these neighborhoods and it's built under the neighborhoods and you know, not exactly building codes in Gaza. I've got to tell you. So when you blow up a tunnel under an apartment house, there's a good chance that apartment house is going to come down. And if the, the, the Palestinians in that apartment house didn't heed the warning and get away, because Israel issued several warnings, both on uh, text messages and this knock-knock system where they send uh, you know, small caliber uh, 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 missiles to hit the roof of buildings and let people know that we're coming. If they didn't heed those warnings, that the, the building could collapse on them. And that was not Israel's intention to kill those people by any means. So, you know, it is a tragic, tragic situation. I personally do not see any way we can handle it really any differently. Mm -hmm. Help my audience understand the difference between the West Bank and Gaza and why they are separate and what is the important differentiators between the two places, if any. I need a history lesson. That's a hard question because it has to do with the UN partition plan of 1947. Mm -hmm. They decided to create an Arab and a Jewish state and they drew boundaries and Israel accepted it and the Arab countries rejected it and the Palestinians rejected it. And on May 14th, May 14th, 1948, when Israel came into being, they all invaded Israel. So at the end of that war, the West Bank, and that's the West Bank of the Jordan River, all right, which separated then what was called Palestine from Transjordan. It was called Transjordan because it was on the other side of the Jordan. <laughs> Jordan right. Transjordan occupied the West Bank and what is today East, known as East Jerusalem. And they, they annexed it, the Jordanians, the great grandfather of the current king of Jordan, annexed it. So Transjordan became Jordan. Gaza was also supposed to be part of the Palestinian state, but it was occupied by the Egyptian army. So the two parts of what was supposed to be on Palestine were occupied by the Jordanians and the Egyptians, not by Israel. Then in 1967, uh, after Jordan attacked us and got the battle with Egypt, Israel pushed the Egyptians out of Gaza, occupied Gaza, pushed the Jordanians out of the West Bank. You know, we don't call it the West Bank, we call it Judea and Samaria, the biblical terms. Uh, the Israeli army went up to the Jordan River and stopped. And, um, you know, since then, now it's very important to note that in 2005, uh, in an operation in which I participated as a reserve officer, uh, Israel ripped up 
the 21 settlements that we had built in Gaza, we, we pulled 8,000 people out of their homes. I, I tell you, everywhere I was in was nowhere near as traumatic as this. It was horrible. I'm dragging people out of their homes. And they're screaming and crying. Uh, in order to give the Palestinians a chance to have an independent Palestinian state. We actually gave them a state in Gaza. And instead of turning it into a peaceful state, they turned it into a terrorist state. Um, Mahmoud Abbas's forces were overthrown by Hamas. Hamas has actually won the last election. To, the, the, to be fair to Hamas, they won the election. They killed about 300 of, of Mahmoud's men. They threw them off the top of roofs. It was really you know, executed them in the street. This is what you're dealing with. And so since then, we've had an ongoing war with with Hamas. The West Bank, on the other hand, is under the authority of Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, created in 1993 by the Oslo. Right, Oslo Accord. Okay, there very we good. have it all. So there, there we go. That's not, and that, there are you many, can't do very really much of this in a nutshell, but that's a very good nutshell summary of those two places. Ooh. I'm indebted to Michael Oren for that. Stay tuned for segment four with our special guest, Michael Oren, in just a moment. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Michael Oren is our special guest, former Israeli ambassador to the United States. That was 2009 to 2013. Historian, ambassador, politician, and extensive writer on the region. So, Michael, I wanted you to address um, the accusation that the Israeli occupation and what Palestinians have to encounter day to day with checkpoints and searches and impediments to their movement when they mean no proximate harm themselves to Israel is by definition humiliating and a root cause of this either alignment with Hamas or general sympathy with Hamas because if there wasn't this occupation and this sense of day-to-day humiliation and degradation, things might be different. Okay, it's a very good question. And, and, it, and of course, it has a complex answer, like everything else in this region. So when I was in charge of, uh, of the Gaza and West Bank, I also did West Bank development. And the government, um, I learned something. I learned that there were 37 crossings into Israel. Um, and every day, about 180,000 Palestinians come to work in Israel. That's uh, the highest levels we've had in 20 years. Most of those Palestinians wait between five and seven minutes to get in. There are several checkpoints in Jerusalem, which are a complete mess. That's like five or six hours. And trying to solve it, get it, trying to get better checkpoints at those points is almost impossible because the PA, Palestinian Authority, doesn't want to normalize Israel's control over East Jerusalem. So it doesn't want to cooperate and make better checkpoints. <laughs> uh, you, can, you can't make this stuff up. But yes, there are checkpoints also in the West Bank. Uh, where Palestinians say traveling from Hebron to Bethlehem might have to go through a checkpoint. Um, and yes, it's uncomfortable. And yes, it's uh, I, for them, it may be humiliating. I think that Israeli soldiers, you know, dealing with a lot of 18-year-old kids, so, you know, for the vast majority of the cases, they act with respect, but you're always going to find cases where they're not. And these checkpoints were established during the Second Intifada, when a thousand Israelis were killed by suicide bombers. It was no joke. I mm-hmm. lost my sister-in-law to a suicide bomber. Uh, my son was shot at close range. We've all lost people. Uh, 
to, to, to Hamas and, and terror. And so we have to you know, sort of counterbalance the, the criticism we're going to get in the world, and some of it's justified. With and to, to remind to remind our free. listeners that the, those suicide bombers would come into cafes, they would come into restaurants, they would come into places that were peaceable and full, uh, uh, only uh, in, uh, where civilians were, yeah. and blow them up. Blow them up. And uh, we live with it. We live with count, countless bombings every day. And it was actually the hard, m- most difficult period I, I've experienced in Israel was the Second Intifada. Uh, and, uh, and so many people we know were killed. So, you know, it's there. It's not a controversial issue in Israel because we know that there's not a real alternative to it. And by the way, we go through checkpoints, too. Uh, you go, is, unlike the United States, you go into any institution, any mall, any, any underground parking lot, you're going to have to get checked. Uh, and it's an, it's an encumbrance. It's an inconvenience. But you, you have to do it. Michael, I want to also ask you what you believe is happening and how fearful you are about it with this, what has been described as intercommunal violence within Israel itself between uh, Arab uh, Israeli citizens and Israeli citizens Mm -hmm. and this tension on the street. Uh, President Biden has remarked about it. What does it say to you and how nervous are you about it? I'm very nervous. And what it portends. Very nervous, very upset. I had a ringside seat for this. Major. You know, I sent him in the bomb shelter. There's a bulletproof glass next to me so I could watch the bombs going up on this side. But from my balcony on the other side, which faces the sea, I could see the riots in Jaffa. Mm-hmm. And uh, I live in a mixed city and I'm proud to live in a mixed city. My neighbors are Arabs um, and we, we get along. Uh, but there are underlying tensions. It, it, it's important to point out that every place where there was there was violence, it was in poor neighborhoods. It wasn't in the middle class neighborhoods. And there's a, there's a socioeconomic aspect to this too. It was poor Arab kids against poor Jewish kids, and vice versa. But there is. And this is new, isn't it? This is new. But this is new. I've never experienced anything like this. Well, in 2000, the beginning of the Second Intifada, there were there were there were really political riots and those who were across the Galilee and the Galilee Arab villages of the Galilee, less in the inner city. These were inner city riots. And um, um, we're going to have to address this. Honestly, there's no real solution for Gaza. We're not going to send the army in there and lose a thousand kids. And and at the end of the day, no one's going to take the keys to Gaza. We're going to be back occupying it. It's a mess. It's just a mess. The West Bank situation right now, there's really no way forward because Mahmoud Abbas doesn't have the authority, the legitimacy to sign a peace agreement if he wanted to. And frankly, we don't have a government either. We're about to go into our fifth election in four years, in three years. Right. Really, there's not even a leadership to negotiate with. So, OK, right now, there's not a lot to talk about there. And I think the Biden administration saying they want to preserve the status quo is fine. But this major, this we cannot, we cannot be complacent about. We have to address this. We have to address the roots of it, both the the ethnic, the religious, and the socioeconomic roots of it. We have to do that if we're going to survive. I want to ask you about a front page uh, analysis piece written by Max Fisher this week, front page of the New York Times. It says, headline, Israel grows less reliant on U.S. aid. And it talks about the long arc of the Israel relationship to various U.S. governments, both financial, diplomatic, and otherwise. And it more or less comes to the conclusion that Israel has found for itself uh, an ability to make many of its own armaments um, and live in the world and find alliances that are not necessarily filtered through uh, either the political or strategic interests of the United States, and not that it is separating from the United States, but that it is less, as the headline says, reliant on U.S. aid and U.S. diplomatic backing. True, untrue. It's true. It's part of, again, (laughs) it's a burden. The answer is (laughs) a little bit more complicated. 
And it's this, here's the complication. Keep in mind that USAID to Israel is at base a, a subsidy that the U.S. government pays to the U.S. arms industry. And yes, it, it, that wasn't mentioned in that article. <laughs> right. And, uh, and Israel's that, the go-between, but it, that's, it's just circular money. It, yes. If Bernie Sanders wants to cut off USAID to Israel, he better go to places in Texas where they make the F-35 and explain why all these people are going to lose their jobs. So that's yeah. that's one. <laughs> okay. And, and I was, as a member of Israeli government, I raised very uh, serious questions about whether Israel should accept President Obama's package. Because uh, it came with a lot of strings. We can't sell to other countries the way we'd like to. And we have to, the Americans basically tell us what we're going to buy. So, um, mm. and there's a basic question of whether as a sovereign state that is now 72 years old and is a very powerful state and our economy is very robust, you know, do, can we afford to have people like Bernie Sanders get up in front of the world and say, well, I'm going to cut the aid off of you. It, it, it's, it's, it, it's not, it's not respectful of a sovereign nation. And it, I mean, in terms of ourselves, we respect ourselves. And it sends, I think it sends the wrong, made, wrong message to some of our enemies. Um, you know, we, we aren't a satrapy. We aren't a province. We are a sovereign nation. Um, so, you know, but it's true. The $4 billion or close to $4 billion that the United States gives an aid to Israel every year used to be a huge, huge segment of Israel's defense plan. About 10%. Now it's less than 1%. Right. It's tiny. You know, you buy with $4 billion, you buy half of one U.S. destroyer. Okay. It's not. It's not in, in the military world. It's not very much, and, and and we you know we deeply appreciate it, but you know it's it, it's not going to make the difference. And and yes, Israel has um, Israel has diversified its foreign policy portfolio. I used to tell Netanyahu that we owe President Obama a big thank you, and he'd look at me kind of querulously. He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Said he threw us out of the nest." He made you go to China. He made you go to Africa. He made you go to South America. And we diversified. We used to just, you know, when I was a paratrooper in Beirut in 1982, you know, we knew that if we got into a jam, Reagan was going to send the Marines and help us out. But guess what? The Marines aren't coming anymore. So the big thing that was missing from that article for me, it didn't talk about the rollback of America power. That there is almost, I can't conceive of almost any situation, any circumstance where the United States is going to project major military power like it didn't in the second Gulf War, you know, 600,000 soldiers going into the Middle East. What's going to, what's going to, how's it going to happen today? What's going to happen? And so for countries like Israel, but not only Israel, it's Japan, Germany, South Korea, that's a sea change. You have my, to find another way. You have to find message, another way or diversify. Yes. My message when I came back from Washington, this is the beginning of 2014, I met with all of the military leaders and I said, guys, I got news for you. We're pretty much on our own now. And it's not the worst thing in the world. We're strong, but it's not going to be the America that you remember. And for all the vast differences between Mr. Obama and Mr. Trump, they had one thing that was very much in common. And they were both isolations. They were both pulling back on the world. And that was very important for Israel to internalize. That is the voice of Michael Oren. He has been our special guest for our radio audience. We need to bid you farewell for those on the podcast platforms and CBSN. Make sure you stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. That's coming up in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I am Major Garrett. Michael Oren is our special guest, former Israeli ambassador to the United States circa 2009 to 2013. Uh, If you've been listening all along, you know we have not tried to do every single day-to-day event, but we've tried to talk broadly about this region 
the Middle East, hyper oversimplified the Middle East. I mean, basically it's Gaza, West Bank, yes, neighboring Jordan, yes, neighboring uh, Lebanon and Israel. Um, one other thing I want to uh, talk to you about, Michael, before we uh, get into some of the fun and games components of the takeout outtake especial is you mentioned early on that the big difference between the Obama administration and the Biden administration is the Biden administration is less ideological. What do you mean by that? I think my audience might be curious about that answer. I think I think uh, President Obama came from a deeply ideological place and um, had uh, very specific notions about uh, international, the importance of international institutions, about non-proliferation, uh, about the Palestinian issue, about the Muslim world. They, they, these were very deeply held uh, beliefs of his. Um, President Biden, I think, is Mis- much more misguided. Misguided. Well, uh, it was a very famous line. There was a famous line in, in Jeff Goldberg's final interview with him. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It was like a six-hour interview, and I, I recommended yes. to all the students of international relations. It's this extraordinary document. It comes out to like like 150 pages of text. Uh, Jeffrey Goldberg asked him, said, you know, you came to the Middle East in 2009 and extended your hand, and it didn't exactly work in Libya or Syria or Yemen or Iraq or Palestinian issues. Uh, in Israel, it, 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 it didn't work. And he said, how do you explain that? He says, well, and, and Obama says something extraordinary. He says, well, the Middle East didn't live up to my vision. And I think that sort of says it all. Um, mm-hmm. Biden, I don't believe that. President Biden, Joe Biden was my point of contact in the administration. He was the person I spent the most time with. When you were ambassador. Yeah, yeah, he was the person I spent the most time mm-hmm. with. And, mm-hmm. and Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, these, these are people mm-hmm. I, I interacted with. They don't, it's not that they don't have ideologies, not that they have firm ideas, but they're much more pragmatic. So, for example, they're looking at the Israel-Palestinian issue, and they see that we in Israel don't really have a leadership. The Palestinians don't have a leadership. They see that Obama and Bush before him invested countless hours and, and resources in trying to move that you know, goalpost somewhere and, and didn't succeed. And they say, look at the world. Listen, we've got to deal with China. We've got to deal with Russia. We've got to deal with Corona. I mean, we're going to deal with this thing? So that's it's very pragmatic. I listened to Tony Blinken's talk yesterday in, in Jerusalem, and he talked about renewing aid to the Palestinians. and He talked about reopening the Palestinian consulate. But he did not say, Major, that we're going to start the peace process again. He did. No, he did not. He did not. No, he did not. And that, no. that is so not, you know, Obama and Kerry. Right. That is, that right. is Biden and, and Blinken. Got it. So uh, I did promise, and the audience uh, deeply appreciates the quote-unquote fun and games part of this Please. segment. And what we really mean by that is we get to know you a little bit better through the um, lens of uh, pop culture. So I have three questions for oh. you. Every one of our guests oh. has taken these questions on, and our audience loves the answers. So take these questions, Michael, in whatever order you prefer. First, uh, most influential book or one of the most influential books in your life? Uh, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? And if you're on a long drive or a long flight um, and you want to really enjoy some music, What's that music likely to be, either by artist or genre? Okay, so my probably my my favorite book um, would be. I'm thinking here. You see the section behind me? Can you see this? Mm-hmm. this is, yes. This is Patrick O'Brien's collection of Master and Commander. <laughs> yeah, oh, fantastic books, fantastic books, and uh, a very it. good movie. And by a the great way. movie, yeah. but I'll, I'll say great movie. It. And I, when I travel, I take one of these with me because that's my my uh, my relief for you know traveling endlessly on the airplanes. Um, wonderful books, and but what's wonderful about them is that they're about leadership, mm-hmm. and they're about friendship, and there's there's an immense amount of wisdom in those books, and, and great history. Um, uh, the the movie, also a historical movie, the movie Glory 
in the, in the yes. 1980s. I don't know if you could make that movie today. I don't be politically correct, but uh, Denzel Washington won an Academy Award for it as a kid. And mm-hmm. uh, it is, I, I taught military history, uh, both at the, it mentioned I was a professor at Harvard and Yale. I taught, I taught a seminar on military history and I use clips from that movie because it's so accurate, like down to the tiniest mm-hmm. details. Some of the things that you wouldn't even notice as in the audience, they took the, took the, the, uh, the time to make it so actually a wonderful movie and a true story. Pa- painstaking and lovingly recreated that story. Yeah. And the story of Colonel Shaw is, uh, is yes. a very inspiring story. Um, and uh, the music. Uh, I-, I love all this music. I have a deep and passionate relationship with Irish music. Really? Yes, 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 yes. I mean, um, this, uh, I'm getting up because I across the room. I, <laughs> I play. Leaving the room ever. I play the ball. So briefly. I play this. Irish drum, which I learned for many years. And um, I used to play with Governor O'Malley, who had a, a Maryland. Uh, yes. <laughs> I used to jam. Yeah, he with had a little him. band and he, and, and, yeah, and he plays. Yeah. He, he, is, he is a super musician. He is, a super is he really? Oh, yeah. He has a, he has an Irish band. And um, I have loved Irish music uh, for a big chunk of my life, ever since I was a young man. And um, I think it's just brilliant. It's brilliant and it's soulful. It goes just to your heart. And uh, I've been to Ireland uh, many times. And, uh, don't put it away. Don't put it away. Don't put it away. Keep it right, right there. there. Keep it right because you're gonna play. You're right. gonna play us out. I'm gonna play us out. So you're gonna, right, right. You're gonna play it. You're gonna play it. us out. But it's it's it, yeah. It has a wonderful earthy sound. Yeah. You can hit so play here. us out, Michael. The inner, your inner hand controls the. <laughs> there we go. If you listen to any, there we go. any Irish song, you'll hear this drum in the background. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm not particularly, um, you know, I don't have great tactile coordination but <laughs> if I, I had to play something so i could participate in the beauty of irish music fantastic so ladies and gentlemen on this show you get a lot of things and one of the things we haven't had until this very episode a former ambassador from the government of israel to the united states playing us out on an irish drum michael horn it's been a great pleasure thank you so very much it's been a great conversation uh, be well and we'll keep in touch be well be well thanks everyone see you next week the Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.